This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. Unfortunately, Steve is not with me today as you might have been able to tell from some of our conversations in the intro. Scheduling is becoming a bit of a hassle for us, but that's all right. We'll keep rolling anyway. Today, I'm so excited we talked, or I talked, I guess, with Mark Allen Shelsky about his new book, The Wisdom of Your Heart. It's all about emotions, how we view emotions. We tend to assume that emotions are bad, especially in kind of the faith world. We largely have learned that emotions are kind of this earthly body thing and that logic is this spiritual kind of higher self thing. And so much of becoming holy is learning how to handle our emotions or avoid our emotions, uh, thinking of stoic pictures of saints and things like that. And his book is all about how that is not the case. That's not a accurate representation of what we find in scripture, of what we find in the examples of Jesus or of God. And so it was a really great conversation. I loved this book. It's very well researched. I told him this. Uh, I always get a little skeptical of pastors writing books about psychological things, but he did a lot of research from emotional theorists and, and people like that. So there's a lot of great, great content in this book. We would love it if you went and gave us a review. The more reviews on iTunes, the more it climbs the charts and people might be able to listen to this. So if you think that it's a, it's a beneficial listen, if you're learning something, if you think it's a conversation that needs to be had in the church world or the mental health world or wherever it is, please go rate, leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, whatever, as well as liking us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, sending, sending us to your friends, however you want to share the word. We appreciate all that you guys do. It wouldn't be possible for us to do this without listeners supporting us and telling their friends. So go do all those things. Spread the word. You can support us on Patreon if you feel strongly about it. It would really help to make this possible. So thanks again for all that you do on behalf of myself and Steve. Enjoy this episode, our interview with Mark Allen Shelsky. Hey, welcome back to the show. Steve is not here with me today, but I'm so excited to be talking with Mark Allen Shelsky. He's the author of the new book, The Wisdom of Your Heart, that we'll talk about some today. Mark is a husband, dad, speaker, writer, hobbyist, theologian, and recovering fundamentalist who drinks tea and rides a motorcycle. Mark is privileged to serve as the teaching elder for Bridge City Community Church in Oregon. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing well today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So besides that intro there, the little bio, what should what should folks know about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I uh, have been in ministry long enough to see all the sides, good and bad. Um, I've been um, on my own journey of emotional recovery long enough to know that uh, even the good things that I do sometimes have motivations that are uh, tangled and messy. 
And I love helping people uh, be able to see a new way of seeing or learn something that uh, sparks their growth. So uh, being in these kinds of conversations where we can talk frankly and honestly about difficult things is really exciting for me. Well, I appreciate that. We're so glad to have you here. We can just jump right into it, I guess. This book, The Wisdom of Your Heart, the subtitle is Discovering the God-Given Purpose and Power of Your Emotions. And I will admit, I was like very interested to read this book. It's one of the more interesting ones that I've gotten recently because I think I am probably coming from somewhat similar of a background of you of, you know, the thought that our emotions are wrong or are misleading all the time or, you know, things like that, which you talk about some in the book. So I found it fascinating. It definitely changed my mind on a couple of things, which is awesome. I love learning. So we'll get into that. But part one of this book is your story, right? Mm. There's kind of four chunks. And part one is your story and how you came to write this book because you didn't yeah. set out to write this book, right? Right. So can you walk walk listeners through a little bit of that story, how this came to be? Sure. Well, the short version is that I was well on my way to being what I thought looked like a successful American pastor um, and, you know, involved in a fun church with lots of activities and ministries and great staff. And, you know, we were growing and it seemed like we were making a difference in the world. And as I was playing the various roles that I played in that story, I really had no idea how much I was living in the red. Um, the, you know, I had the pedal all the way to the floor in my life and I was investing time and heart and energy in helping this church grow and be successful, which felt like a really good, wonderful, godly thing to do. And I just completely had no awareness of the fact that I was um, burning uh, resources that 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 uh, needed to be spent in other ways. That I was shortchanging my marriage, and that I was not taking care of my own heart, and that I was leaning on relationships in a transactional way that was injuring the intimacy that was possible. Of relationships with other ministry leaders and staff members. And, you know, I just thought we were building a church and, you know, we were pushing hard to make wonderful things happen. And I lived that way for long enough that uh, real damage was done. And I didn't really realize it until uh, it was nearly too late. I, um, my own, my own life uh, began to kind of shake and, and the ground started to tremble under me when we had our first child. My wife and I waited several years before we had children. And uh, because of that, I kind of thought that the pace that I was living at was working. And when we had our first child and all the demands that come with having a child, uh, it began to stretch me past my capacity. And then um, about a year later, through kind of miraculous set of circumstances, I feel we had a, a second child come into our family. And that just pushed that just pushed it over the edge. There was not enough time. There was not enough heart or energy to do all the things that I was committed to doing. And I, I didn't know up until this point. I mean, I really didn't know for much till much later how deeply I was driven by a need to accomplish and perform. Um, my sense of value was really rooted in whether I was providing you know, a good product, whether I was being of value to the people in my community. The, the mental image that I had when I started talking about this with my therapist was I felt like 
I had to buy my ticket to sit at the table with my performance. And yeah. if I ever stopped performing, my seat at the table would, would come into question. And so when, when we had, you know, our first child, my daughter, and then our son came into the family and I just couldn't, I couldn't do everything that I had done before. I couldn't pull the late nighters. My wife was stretched to the end of her capacity and she was in a place where she was not willing to um, flex with the way that I had been living in the past. And I couldn't perform in the way that I was used to performing. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like maybe that big of a deal, right? It's a season of life. You, you cut back, you be with your family. That sounds all normal and healthy, but that's not what I did. You know, what I did is I collapsed because I was not able to perform to accomplish to do the things I needed to do. And, and as the plates that were spinning fell, what was breaking was my sense of value, my sense of self-respect, my sense of self-esteem. And I got into a really dark place. Um, just my, my brain wouldn't function the way that I was used to it functioning. Um, the, the capacity I was used to having in terms of how much I could get done and what I could, you know, how long it took me to write a sermon and the kinds of, the kinds of things I could keep track of in my brain. Uh, these things started to fail me and that I had never had that experience before, um, you know, missing meetings and dropping balls and, and uh, failing to follow through on things that, that uh, people had asked of me. And the end result was that I ended up in a place where, where I, I nearly burnt out just the motivation just sapped. I couldn't, I didn't have it in me to push further, to push harder. And I, um, you know, kind of lived in this really sick pattern where, uh, if, if your only interaction with me was coming to church on the weekend, you would see me up front, uh, performing at my best. And it would look, you know, for all the world, like a good public performance of what a good pastor is supposed to look like. And then I would, go home at the end of a 17 hour day and I would collapse into bed and I wouldn't be a functional human being until Wednesday. Yeah. And, um, then all through that time, you know, we still have two small children and my wife and she was basically a single parent during this whole season. And I felt, you know, anytime that she would speak up about it, I felt, you know, I felt put upon and violated. Like how could she, how could she expect me to not pour my heart out for my ministry and the calling God's given me? And, you know, how wrong is she to demand these things? And, and the blaming would just continue and create division and, and, uh, undermine our intimacy. And all of the aspects of my life were, were careening in a direction of brokenness. And my marriage was not in a sustainable place. The way that I was living wasn't going to set me up for a good relationship with my kids. Um, I was, in a place where I felt like a big fraud in my ministry at church because nobody knew how I was living. They, nobody knew that I was, you know, performing the best that I could and then basically incapacitated. And, um, I could see all of that, you know, falling apart. I could see the church falling apart. I could see losing, uh, losing my ministry. I could see me losing my marriage and it just, I didn't know what to do because my tool set, my entire tool set was uh, to work harder. Um, you know, I'll learn, yeah. I'll read a book, I'll take a class, I'll work right. more hours. I will, I'll solve the problem. I can do it. And you cannot work your way out of burnout. You can't work harder your way out of emotional denial. You can't 
you know, put in more hours and have that result in soul care, you can't, you can't do that. And so the set of tools I had were not the tools that I needed to get the job done. And I just was at the end of myself. Yeah. One of the things that struck me in reading at least the beginning chunk of this book is how, how rare maybe we think a story like that is, but how common it actually is. So I actually read your book immediately after finishing a book called Leading on Empty by Wayne Cordiero, who's also a pastor. And his, the beginning chunk of that book is very, very similar to the beginning chunk of your book where he's going wow. along and it's all going well. And, you know, I think there's something about those of us who work in ministry and think we're doing things for Jesus, right? We're, we're doing the good work. And there's something about that that makes it maybe even harder to step back and say, hey, I need time for me because it feels almost more selfish, right? You're saying I could be well, I think affecting that's right. lives. I think that's exactly right. I think especially for folks who've grown up in certain uh, certain streams of the Christian church, there's a narrative that we get as children that that holiness is self-sacrificial. And just saying that sentence, it sounds right and true. And I feel like all the theologians would nod their head. Yeah. But but I think the way that, that somebody who is not tending to the wellness of their heart, someone who has emotional brokenness or mental illness, the way that somebody in that place hears that concept that holiness is self-sacrificial is always going to be destructive uh, because it becomes a perfect justification. I don't, uh, you know, the reality was I had brokenness in my marriage but I didn't have to face brokenness in my marriage because I was on a mission from God. And how right. could I, you know, if somebody called me, if a church member called me and said, Mark, I really need to meet with you for breakfast. You know, breakfast is the only time that works for me because I have a job and I have to go to it at this time. And so can you meet me at 530? You know, I felt like the only right answer as a pastor was to say, yes, of course, I'll be there. What time and where? Yeah. yeah. You know, and and that's a wonderful gift to give someone. But it's also a gift that comes at a cost to someone else. Yeah. Because that window of time is a window of time that belongs to my family. And so am I, you know, what 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 is going on in my heart that allows me to see that that's a way to live? And even, you know, maybe it happens one time or maybe it happens once a year. That's different than living in a way which which I was doing where I was making myself available in that way for everyone in the world except for my family. Yeah. And I felt like I was doing a godly thing in that in that way, and then that's absolutely wrong. It's absolutely terrible. And um, now there's a you know people who when they call me and say that they want to meet me at that time, who end up thinking I'm not a very good pastor because I say no. <laughs> so you mentioned it there about growing up in a particular maybe not denomination, but well maybe denomination, but also just a culture that that elevates self sacrifice, right? Which I think like much of what we're going to talk about today comes from maybe a good place or a grain of, of truth, right? We see in scripture, true love is, or um, no greater love is than to lay down your life for a friend. Or, you know, we know right. that Jesus loves us because he sacrificed his life. But I think that's so easy to take well beyond where where it was meant to be, right? We even see in the scripture, Jesus taking time away to go pray, to be away from the crowds, Right, right. So you mentioned they're growing up in a, in a certain way, and I love, I underlined a couple of things here. Uh, in the beginning, Chunk, you write, if you don't know and understand your own story, it will keep shaping your choices. Uh, and a little yeah. further down, you write, we all do what we do for reasons. Those reasons are rooted in our stories. So you hit this point, and then 
you go through kind of a, a journey of figuring out what your story is and where the things that you're, the reactions you're having, what they're rooted in, right? Yeah. And you go to what sounds like a pretty awesome retreat, a retreat where you learn about emotions. Yes, right. Yeah, I um, uh, kind of the, the intro for me to even be talking about those things was that in my local community here in town, I had made connections with two guys, and I mentioned both in the book, and they, they both are former pastors that have gone on to do other things. They both are men who have lived through very profound personal trauma and brokenness, and they're both men who've done their work. You know, they, they have put in the hours of journaling and therapy and and conversations of reconciliation and dealing with the stuff in their story. And so I, you know, built these relationships with these two guys and we'd get together uh, independently uh, from time to time for breakfast or coffee or whatever. And, you know, they were gracious and kind and they listened and they, you know, there, there was nothing in my relationship with them where they were depending on me for something. You know, they weren't church members that I was having to perform for. They weren't, you know, church employees that I was having to manage. They were just guys I knew. And because of that, it kind of unhinged some of the hooks that I would normally have had in those relationships. And I began to share more of what I was going through. And because of their story, they could see me in a way that I don't think I could even see myself. You know, they were both of them. While they're much, much different in temperament, they both of them were not willing to let me lie to them. Uh, and not that I was intentionally lying, you know, not that I was deceiving them about something in my life uh, on purpose. It's just that, that when we live the way that we live, we have reasons we justify it. You know, we have reasons why this one project is really big and really important and taking all my time. And when I'm through this one project, everything will go back to normal or you know, this one person, I've come across this one person and man, they're just, they are the future leader that I need for my church. And so I just need to invest in discipling them right now so that I can draw them in and then that'll relieve some of my workload or whatever. We have these stories that we tell and they just weren't willing to accept my justifications and, you know, ask me questions and pointed out things that I was doing. And, and, you know, one of them was really pretty frank and harsh with me and, and made it clear that, how I was living was not sustainable. The church would not survive it. I would probably not survive it in ministry and I could not fix it on my own. And the more I tried to fix it on my own, the deeper into the mess I would get. And so that, that guy I mentioned in the book, his name is Stephen, um, invited me to go to this retreat, which was uh, specifically for pastors experiencing burnout. The yeah. facilitator, the therapist uh, who facilitated the retreat was also a former pastor. And so he brought, a wealth of experience both as a pastor and as a mental health practitioner to the table. And I learned a lot, but the things that happened there were deeper than just learning. You know, I had some really significant realizations about the truth of my heart while I was at that event that, that really shaped me profoundly. And one of them was understanding how I had, had really been living disconnected from significant part of my life and that that was something that needed to be recovered. I didn't know what it meant at that point. I didn't know what it was going to cost, but I knew that, you know, what I was doing wasn't working and I didn't see a path out on my own. And so it was then when I came back from that retreat that I, one of the, one of these friends that I mentioned was also a trauma therapist. And so I sat down with him and I said, you know, I don't even have it in me to find a therapist. 
you know, to go and I I know how that works. You know, you sit and you tell your story and then you tell it again and then you tell it again (laughs) and and you hope to find someone that's a good match. Like I don't even have it in me to do that. Tell me who is the person I should go to. Yeah. And he did. He gave me an amazing referral and that, that began the journey. And, and I don't, I don't, mean to say that the therapist was the magic. I don't think that's true. But I think for me, personally, by temperament, being willing to say, I can't do this on my own. I can't read the book by myself. I have to have someone outside my head that I can essentially submit myself to that I can, that I can say, I can't solve this. I need extra eyes on the problem. I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to be honest with somebody. Um, just saying that was a first for me. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never, I can't remember in my life ever having done that since maybe I was a child. And that set the ball rolling. Yeah. I think as an almost therapist, that's going to sound so dumb. Oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> um, I think you said a couple awesome things there. I think, you know, so often when we can't fi- fix things ourselves, uh, what I've heard a lot of people's kind of barrier to go into counseling is that, you know, oh, that I'm supposed to walk in and that person's just going to fix me. And that's yeah. not at all it. It's that that person can sit across from you and point things out and help you to figure out what the solutions are, right? You mentioned your two friends who were not willing to let your justifications go by, but to point them out. And that's a lot of counseling is saying, hey, here's what you're saying. Now I'm going to say it so that you have to look at it because when it's when it's outside of you and it's coming from somewhere else, you have to face it. So I think that's a that's an awesome realization that, of yours. Well, that was, the, that was the thing I, you know, I didn't know going into it. I didn't expect it. You know, honestly, the way we started therapy, the way I started therapy was, to be truthful, marriage therapy. Um, the very first place that that we went, my wife agreed to go with me. We went to this therapist that had been recommended and we went with the mindset that our marriage was what was struggling and that, you know, I went in with the idea that this person would be an objective third party, you know, so that we could get out of that, you know, kind of cycle of blaming each other, an objective third party that would give us some tools and some exercises and hold us accountable to that. And, you know, we did that for, I don't know, four or five sessions, something until the therapist said, you know, Mark, I don't think Christina needs to come back for a while. I think, I think you and I should spend some time talking about how you got to be where you are. So what was that moment like for you? (laughs) Um, It was, it was really painful. Um, saying that the marriage has the problem is a way easier, less, uh, less, uh, painful way of framing the problem, uh, than it is to say, I'm the one that I'm the one. I mean, not to say that my wife didn't have her issues. She ended up going to therapy herself on her own, but that's what ended up happening. What was best for our marriage wasn't marriage counseling. What was best for our marriage was the two of us doing our own work with our own therapist so that we could understand our story and how that was shaping the way we were relating to one another. And if you told me up front that that was the deal, I probably wouldn't have gone. Right. You know, but by the time we got to that point in the conversation, we'd build a great relationship with this therapist. She was really, really wonderful. And she was able to say really difficult things. You know, that session, um, she, you know, she opened, uh, you know, referring to the old, um, you know, the old story of the frog sitting in the kettle of water 
And, right, right. Uh, you know, the water gets hotter and hotter and the frog doesn't even know. And she said, that's, that's the difficulty that you're in a situation where you don't even know how bad this is. And, and here's the truth I have to tell you right now, your marriage is dead. Hmm. What you're talking to me about wanting to have between you, it's you, you don't have the thing that you say you want to have. You don't have it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it can't exist. That doesn't mean we can't get, you know, that, that I'm not saying we can't get there, but I'm saying that us trying to sit together in a room and fix your marriage is just trying to do CPR on a dead body. Wow. And what we need to do is we need to get into your story, talking to me, and you need to get into your story. And if you are open to, you know, growing new intimacy between you, that's completely possible. And um, that was you know, horrifying to hear, um, really painful to hear, but it happened in a context where, you know, we had built up some, some trust. It was actually longer than I think I mentioned five or six sessions. It was longer than that. Um, you know, she, she had built up that relationship where my heart's response was, you know, simultaneously, Oh no. And yes, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Man. So you go, into that, you investigate some of your backstory and why you're reacting the way you do. And then your response as a pastor and a hobbyist theologian is to say, is this biblical, right? The whole second chunk is our emotions in the Bible, because we've, we've come from a place of, and I think this is true pretty universally as far as most of the people listening, will be from a culture that by and large has said, hey, there's emotions that are a bad thing and there's logic that's a good thing. And then we've kind of applied that sweepingly to a lot of areas, including our faith life. Yeah, that was, you know, that was definitely the background that I came from, you know, feeling is the caboose on the train and all that stuff. And um, one of the things that happened as we began in therapy, uh, one of the things that was really painful was that, you know, my therapist, I mean, she talked way less than I wanted her to talk. You know, I wanted her to give me truth that I could apply to my life. And she did a lot of listening and asking questions and essentially holding up a mirror. And the most painful part is when she would hold up the mirror and it was very clear that something I believed about myself was objectively speaking, not true. And that was brutal to have to come face to face with these different ways I had identified this is who I am. This is why I am the way I am. This is why I think what I think. And I had this very clear picture in my mind of who I am. I think all of us do. And just by her asking questions and observing and noticing and sharing her reflections, she showed me that objectively speaking, there were several significant places in my life that what I believed to be true about myself was just not what was real. Yeah. And, and one of those was how I thought about emotions. And so that really pushed me to, to, to understand why do I think the way that I think about emotions? What part of that has to do with my family? What part of that has to do with my heritage growing up as a preacher's kid in a conservative denomination, right in the center of a conservative community? Uh, you know, I was raised as a kid with Bible stories and scripture memorization and learning how to handle God's word. And like, that was, that was the main vehicle, uh, my upbringing. 
child through school, church school, and and youth group, and all that stuff. And so, how did those things shape the way that I that I thought about um, that I thought about emotion? And of course, I've been studying the Bible long enough that I know there's a difference between um, how, what the Bible actually says. And what I've been told the Bible says by people who've interpreted it for me, right? right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so being conscious of that, and then saying, okay, now that I've identified some of the ways I was taught about this, I maybe I ought to go back and read for myself and understand. And so then that was the next piece of it was what, you know, if I believe that God was involved in creating me, and I and I don't think this the discussion is not about whether you believe in a literal seven day creation Genesis story. It's just simply if you believe that, or if you believe in in a, a longer process. Either way, you think God's involved in making us be who we are. And if that's true, if that's what you believe the Bible says, then how do emotions fit into that? How how are emotions a part of what God caused to be true about us? And that was just a question that had been left unaddressed in my growing up. Emotions were always seen as an obstacle, something to manage, something to test you to see if you really had strong faith, uh, a temptation, you know, all of the ways we thought about emotion, they were all, they were all negative. They were all, right. they were all pictures that whatever is coming to you through your emotions needs to be ignored, minimized, uh, set aside, uh, denied, um, you need to just repeat over and over and over to yourself what you believe to be true theologically. You know, it was all it was that was the story I grew up with. And I know that there's, I know there's theological streams that that have a more positive view of emotions, and that not everyone shares my experience. But as I've had this conversation, I know a lot of people have a similar experience, and yeah. and it seems like if we're going to have any kind of of uh, conversation about growing and maturing as people, we have to be able to attend to that. Like, what, what yeah. does the Bible really say about it? Yeah, I'm even thinking of, you know, even if you weren't explicitly said, hey, emotions are bad, I'm thinking of animated cartoons of gospel stories, and the character of Jesus always is very monotone. He always yes. is very, yeah. no, Peter, don't do that. This is, <laughs> right, you know, right. <laughs> things like that. So you did a an interview with uh, a friend of Stephen and I's, Aaron J. Smith, a, a while back, and he asked you, what is this book about? And you started your answer by saying, it's about growing up. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful because there is something about, I, I know that for me, and this isn't true of everybody, but for me, the most growth I've experienced in my life as a person towards being a whole and healthy person is when I've taken the time, I've gone to therapy, I've, I've spent enough time trying to figure out why I react the way I do, where that comes from, and then kind of moved from there. So take us into, you explored some, are there emotions in the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Done. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting piece because I think that kind of the big headline Bible conversation for a long time now has been kind of the the conversation about biblical authority and biblical literalism, you know, and so you have, you know, conservative folks saying, yes, it's, a, you know, it's literal journalism and more liberal folks saying, no, you have to understand the context and do some textual criticism. And, you know, everybody's kind of having that argument. Right. And, and the, the result is that a lot of times we don't actually read the Bible for what it actually says about itself. We, we read it to try and resolve this tribal question. And when you actually go to the Bible to look for emotions, what happened for me was I was sort of mortified and embarrassed. 
to see the emotions just plastered all over it everywhere yeah. messy gross embarrassing emotions god behaving in ways that we that don't seem like you know they're very fitting for god you know in terms of that sort of you know appropriate responsible mature authority figure that we have in mind right you know bible characters that just you know are just off their rocker in their reactional nature and the way that they, you know, handle things. I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere. And, and so, and so then, you know, that's a, a lens, right? We, we easily, it's easy to read the Bible with a certain lens and you miss stuff that doesn't fit the lens that you're right. looking for, you know? And so that's what happened for me. And I, I just, I was just seeing it everywhere, you know, all kinds of language describing God that is absolutely emotional language. You know, all kinds of language describing Jesus that's emotional language. Heroes of faith, people that are up on our top ten list of the Bible characters we all know, right, doing these things that are clearly motivated deeply by emotional response. Okay, so what do we do with that? Yeah. Well, so what do we do with that? <laughs> well, for, You're for the pastor me, here. Right. For me, the first thing was I think it was really um, uh, freeing. To think of uh, the folks in the Bible being uh, real human beings uh, rather than the sort of um, saintly religious automaton that we kind of envision, you know, uh, that I wrote about and you kind of referred to this idea of that Jesus is so holy that he's completely calm and placid and right. never, you know, never reacting. And you have to do a lot of mental interpretation to actually read Jesus interactions in the New Testament in that tone of voice. You know, if you really read them and let the words guide you, there are clearly places where it seems for all the world like Jesus is frustrated or where it seems very clearly that he's that he's angry and he's not just saying you know, harsh words in a firm tone of voice. You know, it, it sounds like if you were in the room, the voice would have been raised and there would have been some energy, the kind of energy that would have made you stop doing what you were doing and turn around and look, right. you know. And to, to think that that's real, um, that's a different picture than the picture I had in mind. And and that that opens up a different possibility. You know, I I, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, in the church that I grew up in, talking about martyrs was a big deal. Um, hmm. So we had stories that was a common enough occurrence that we heard about Christian martyrs in various, you know, various episodes of church history when, you know, whichever group was being persecuted by whichever other Christian group, you know. And um, I recall as a kid hearing these stories and and thinking about, you know, the, the Christian martyrs and they're bound to the stake and the flames are licking up onto their toes. And the way the story is told is that they're, they're like beaming with this holy light and they're singing hymns and somebody in the crowd, you know, is converted watching them do this. And I don't know, like I wasn't there. I don't know how much of that is, you know, hagiography or how much of that is really the amazing grace of God in a moment of incredible, you know, blessing. I don't know, but I do know the dark side of that story. And the dark side of the story is that for a little kid hearing that it painted the picture that if you were really, really holy, you would not feel fear or pain. Mm. Yeah. If you were a really, really godly person, 
you wouldn't complain. Like th- those people were going through the most horrific thing I could imagine. It was nothing, you know, my, my little issues were nothing in comparison. They're not complaining. They're singing hymns and praising Jesus, you know, and, and that paints a picture unintentionally. I, I absolutely know it's unintentional. Like the person who told that story was not, they were not making a statement about emotions, but the unintentional backside is painting this picture that the more holy you become, the less detached from human feeling you will be. Yeah. And if that's the target on the wall, that target is a target that leads to sickness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even, so we spent a lot of time on the show talking about the stigma and, and shame surrounding, talking about your mental health in culture at large, but especially in the church and things like that. And I think at the root of that is what you're talking about, this this weird goal or this weird idea of that talking about emotions whatsoever, unless it's joy or peace uh, somehow indicates that you're further from God or that your faith is malfunctioning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the the part that I found very interesting, well, I found a lot, I found almost the whole book interesting. Well, I guess the whole book, I'm not trying to oh, insult almost. Jones. No, it's really good. Which, Wait, just page, tell me about uh, which part. 86. Then. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think the, let me see, I think it's the third, yeah, the third chunk here is probably the longest. And the if I had to sum up the third chunk, it would be that your emotions are at some level pointing you towards truth. Yeah. Which is a very interesting. So I'm guilty of, you mentioned it a little while ago, you mentioned, uh, you know, repeating over and over yourself what you know to be true theologically. And I'm 100% guilty of, and it was part of the reason I was so interested to read this book, of, of telling people and even to myself saying, hey, feelings are misleading a lot of the time. So when you get to a spot to tell yourself the things that you know to be true, right? So for me, a long time, uh, for a long time, I felt uh, worthless or, hey, you don't matter or you're always hurting people. And so the way that I fought against that was to tell myself things that I knew to be true, right? No, God loves me. No, I know right, that, right. you know, people love me. And so to kind of reframe that, I don't think that's all bad, but I think the point you make here that your feelings are pointing to something true is an interesting concept and one that uh, I think you sold me on. It's it's a head turner for sure, um, and and I think it's provocative to for most of us to hear that our feelings are telling us the truth. But what I'm asking people to do is to push deeper in and to be thoughtful about how we use the word feeling to begin with. Like I think a lot of times we use the word feeling in a very sloppy way. Uh, sometimes when we say I feel something, what we really mean is I kind of think something. Right, right. right. Like I kind of think this idea, but I'm not committed enough to say I believe it or I think it. And and we also identify um, certain things as feelings that are really beliefs. So if if I say I'm feeling worthless, that's a statement that needs to be parsed a little bit more deeply because because you don't worth isn't a feeling. You it, you're holding a belief that you are of no value, and there's feelings that go along with that: feelings of alienation, feelings of isolation, feelings of loneliness, feelings of fear, feelings of anxiety. All those feelings and that belief kind of come together to make the package 
of what we mean when we say I'm feeling worthless. And and because it's a belief, because I'm holding a belief that I am of, I'm of no value, it's, it makes perfect sense that you would address that by bringing in an alternative belief. That you yeah. would say, no, the truth is God values me. The truth is my value is established in Jesus. The truth is I'm a worthwhile human being with dignity. Again, those are all beliefs. And you're addressing this false belief I'm of no value. But then by saying that that's the feeling, we're not ad- actually allowing ourselves to address the emotional responses that are happening in our in our emotional response system. And that's and that's what I'm pushing people to pay attention to. That when you have an emotional response to something, that emotional spot response, it always means something. Even if you're uncomfortable with my language in the book where I say your emotions are telling you the truth, if that's uncomfortable for you, then just scale it back and say your emotions are telling you something that is meaningful and important. And just start with that. Because the the the, the truth is that your emotional response system is like the warning light on the dashboard of your car. It's giving you a piece of information that's reflecting the state of your internal circumstances or your out your internal state or your outward circumstances. Something's happening inside you or around you, and you're having an emotional response to that. And that emotion is rising up within you, anger or fear or joy or whatever it is, and it's giving you an indicator about something that's going on around you. And then we go from there and we start making up stories about it and that's where we get off track. That's where we begin to do things that are hurtful. That's where we begin to re-embed beliefs that are that are not true because we have a feeling confirming that belief. You know, but it starts by saying, hey, stop, stop the presses, slow down a moment and just notice what is happening when you have an emotional response. Notice that and pay attention because it means something important. Yeah, I think I actually, during the the part of the book where you made the analogy towards a check engine light or a warning light on my on, on a car, I think I said out loud, mm, that's awesome because I'm for sure going to steal that. I don't know if you trademarked it too bad. I'm definitely going <laughs> to steal that uh, when, as a, again, as an almost therapist or just as somebody right. who talks about these kind of things, but I'm absolutely going to steal that because your point there is is a great one that the check engine light comes on and I can create stories all I want based on that. Right. But that doesn't mean that that is the truth of that emotion or the light going off. It just means that the, the emotion of the light going off is pointing towards something else. Right. Right. It's meant to get your attention about something. And then that's where we begin to, to enter into the process of growth and maturity is right. We stop, we notice and we say, Oh, Hey, what's this pointing to? And maybe it's pointing to something superficial, you know, my, my daughter is squawking in the living room and it's irritating me, you know, <laughs> maybe that's all it is. Or maybe it's pointing to something deeper. And that was my experience is that when I began to start listening, I began to be taken directly to heart issues, deep heart character issues that were being uh, triggered by what was going on around me in my relationships. And if we don't pay attention to that, you know, we, we don't grow, right? I mean, when I look at the Christian church, I, I feel like the biggest crisis in the Christian church is weakness of Christian character. Hmm. I think that Christians are just not growing into people that are faithful, true, kind, you know, like lay out the, the fruit of the Spirit. Like I think in general, the church does not reflect the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't think God is just going to bestow that on us. I don't think it's just like, boom, all of a sudden you're kind, right? Boom, right. Now, now you're gentle. Like that is not how it works. 
Like these are things that require healing and growth. And that only happens if we're paying attention. You know, one of the fruits of the spirit is, is gentleness. If I'm not a gentle person, if I'm not known for gentleness in my relationships, there's a reason for that. Sure. There's something in my story. There's something going on in me that causes me to be short and harsh with the people in my life. And if I don't have cause to stop and reflect on that, how is the Holy Spirit of God going to speak to me about it? Yeah. Right? Like the answer is not, I sat in worship one day and the music really moved me and I was convicted that I should stop being such a jerk and now I'm not. Right, right. Right? That's not, that is not how this works. <laughs> right. That experience may have happened, but the, the acting on I should be less a jerk isn't an instant magic wand wave. Right, because you're not being a jerk just because you chose it. Right. right. You're being a jerk because there have been patterns of thought and feeling and reactivity that have been embedded in your heart and mind over the course of your life. And they come from something, and they're rooted in something. And if you don't understand that, um, you may not even know. I mean, that was part of my struggle, right? I did not know until I sat down with people who cared about me. I did not know how much I was coming off as arrogant and cold to people. And it was horrifying to discover it because that's not my heart. My heart has never, I've never felt like I'm above people. If anything, I felt like I'm a 17 year old. Why does anyone trust me with these responsibilities? <laughs> right. I've not, I've not felt that way. So how is it that they're getting this impression? Well, they're getting this impression because I'm not emotionally connected to them. And when somebody doesn't connect with you, when they need you to do something, but they won't connect with you, you feel like they're using you, right? You feel yeah. like they have an agenda your life you feel something but you don't you don't feel their heart yeah. and that's what that's what's happening in my life and it and it took me getting to a place where i was willing to sit with the discomfort of oh these people feel this way about me why is that you know and i yeah. i don't like that feeling i don't like feeling that and you know belonging is a huge button in my life and now the button of belonging is getting smashed, and so I feel antsy, and 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 uh, I feel at risk, and so now I'm liable to jump into my coping mechanisms of powering up and trying to manage the situation, which is what got me into this to begin with, you know. So how can I stop that? Not go those places, and just be with this discomfort. Yeah. Why am I feeling this discomfort? What's happening in me that's that's bringing that up? And stuff comes up that just. That just is, it's character growth stuff. It's Holy Spirit changing your heart kind of stuff. But it won't happen if you aren't willing and able to stop and sit and reflect. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. You, There's two quotes here. One, you wrote, the more out of touch I am with my emotions, the less relationally intuitive I'll be, which I think is a fantastic point. And then you follow it up by saying, emotional maturity pushes us into poorly lived lives. And I think you hit it right on the nail on the head there that when I'm reacting ways to other people's comments towards me or situations. It's for a reason. And when I know that reason, I can understand myself a little better. I can slow down. I can react less. It feels like it's less from just the core of me, right? Because I know where it came from. And I think that when somebody else is reacting to something, instead of us just going back and forth reacting, if I'm the type of person who says, hey, I know that this comes from somewhere, I'm much more likely to look at somebody else who's acting a certain way and say, I know that's coming from somewhere. That's not just, you know, you're a, a big jerk who acts this way all the time. And so I think on both yeah. sides, it, yeah. makes, it makes relationships easier. 
I think that's exactly right. And even if you haven't done the work to where you really know the answer, you know, I know why I'm this way. Maybe you haven't done that or you haven't, or, or sometimes these things are deep mysteries, right? Sometimes it takes a long time. Right. Sometimes we never get to the bottom of them. But still, knowing this principle changes the way you relate to yourself and other people. You know, when I have a, a reaction, let's say my daughter does something and I just have a just a really strong anger reaction, knowing that this is how this works, I can just flag that and say to myself, I don't know why I'm so angry about this right now. I don't know the answer, but I know my anger is disproportionate. Yeah. My daughter just did something that if I were an objective third party looking at the situation, I would not think is worthy of this kind of anger. Yeah. So now I, I'm not... I'm not going to take. I'm not going to take the time to stop and debrief this whole thing right now. But I can stop my. I can stop. I can stop sort of authorizing angry behavior. Right. I can say, okay, my anger right. is disproportionate. I I need to do something. Like I need to put myself in timeout. Right. I need to go. Yeah. I need to go mow the lawn or do something because I don't know where this is coming from. But I know it doesn't have to do with her. Like just that awareness. That's awareness that's transformational for relationships because now. That anger that's coming up in me isn't going to get um, poured out on her in an inappropriate right, way, right? You know, and I can go and say, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go mow the lawn now, and and maybe I sort it out, and maybe I don't. You know, sometimes this is stuff that just kind of works its way out subconsciously, but but I still have to have that recognition to say I'm stopping the train here. Yeah. I feel the thing I I feel the thing I'm feeling. I I don't want to you know, say something that's hurtful to her or react in a way that's in a, that I shouldn't, that's inappropriate. So just because I know that this is how this works, I'm going to go do something else. You know, well, that's new. That's new for me. And maybe somebody listening to this is going, well, of course, duh, that's obvious, basic stuff. Well, for me in my life, it wasn't obvious, basic stuff. Yeah. Right. For me, yeah. I lived in a situation where I first off didn't, I didn't ever feel like I had strong feelings. And so whenever I had a strong feeling, most of the time the strong feeling was anger, I always automatically assumed my anger was justified. Yeah. Right? Like I'm the kind of, I'm a good person. So if I'm angry right now, it must be because you really deserve it. Like that's a narrative. Right. And I was able to live in that narrative. And of course, that's not a narrative that opens the door to dialogue or learning or listening or growing or, you know, any good thing. You know, I'm, I'm angry and I deserve to be angry because you deserve me to be angry at you. And I think there's a lot of folks who live with that level of unconsciousness. And so for me, that was revolutionary to yeah. even have the awareness that, you know, my anger is coming from within me. You didn't cause it. Right, uh, right. It has to do. It has to do with my story. I can work it through and understand it, and then I can have control over how I respond to you. You know, what's what's the truth in this anger right now? You know, and you know when 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 I had angry responses to my daughter, and they were disproportionate. The truth that surfaced was painful and embarrassing, because the truth that surfaced when I sat with it wasn't that my daughter was being, you know, a bad nine-year-old who deserved to have my wrath poured out on her. The truth was that I had a story in my heart that I needed to be respected in a certain way and mm -hmm. being respected by my child looked like a certain kind of obedience. And if she wasn't going to do that, if she wasn't going to obey me in that way, she was uh, attacking this need that I had to be right. respected. You know, well, as soon as that became clear to me, I mean, that was a God moment. As soon as that became clear to me, I, I was horrified, right? This is not who I want to be. Right. I can't just 
turn the switch off, but oh my gosh, now that I know, you know, Holy Spirit drill into that place and change me because I don't want to relate to the people in my life out of the need to be respected. Right. Hmm. That's so good. I think that's one of them you mentioned there when in the section where you're talking about what emotions might be pointing us towards the one that hit me the hardest, I think, was that anger is often a, a warning light that's pointing towards something that, that we're holding as an idol, which, I mean, you referenced it right there. You know, if you're finding your value and your worth in needing to be respected and needing to be valued in a certain way, then when people disrespect you or what you perceive as disrespect, then you're going to get angry. So right. certainly an, an awesome point. Yeah, because the, the thread that got to that point, you know, was it started with just a very basic learning, you know, way back at that retreat, that therapist got up and he started writing emotions on the board, he gave us a handout, and he said some very basic things. And one of them, you know, we since we're talking about anger, we'll use that one. You know, he said, anger is the emotion you feel when you or someone you love has been violated, asterisk, and the asterisk is according to your own private logic. Hmm. And and so he's saying, look, when you feel angry, there's a reason for it. The reason is that this emotion rises up when you feel violated. And so just that little piece of information, like that was very elementary. Well, months and months and months and months down the line is when I had that experience with my daughter. And so I get angry. I have this disproportionate anger response. And later on, I stop and go, okay, man, what was that about? Oh, right. Anger is the emotion you feel when you or someone you love has been violated. Okay, let's let's use that as a lens to look at this. Was I being violated by my daughter? No, she's nine or ten, however old she was at the time. You know, she wasn't able to do anything horrible to me. She wasn't violating me. So why did I feel so angry? What was being violated in this scenario? And the more I pushed into that, the more it became clear to me that what was being violated was my pride. Why was my pride being injured by my daughter not responding to me the way that I wanted in the way I wanted her to respond? What was the injury and that's where you know the holy spirit takes me deeper and in this situation it was look you you are needing you are needing people to treat you with a certain kind of respect and that mm. has to look this way in your mind with your children in terms of obedience right. and you're holding that so deeply and that's where you know i think it's appropriate to use the idle language right this is something right. i'm holding on to i'm loving and I'm, I'm looking to it for security you know well that's no way to relate to your daughter and and better than that Let's let's work on that. Let's see if we can relieve you of that idol so that you can be more open in your love for Jesus and the world. You know, and and that all came, you know, that's was a fairly deep transformative moment, but that came at the end of a road that started way 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 back just hearing, "Oh, hey, you have emotions. Emotions are responses. They point to some truth and and here's what they mean." You know, very very simple. Now follow that through into this real life circumstance. Right. So good. Hey, listener, you should go pick up this book. If you're like me and you kind of are, are wary or hesitant when you pick up a book by a pastor that tries to address some kind of psychological type things, uh, I will <laughs> reassure you there's a lot of references in here. You don't just place what you think is right and try to broadly assert it as the truth all around. You reference a lot of emotional theorists as well as being packed with scripture references. So I really appreciated that. Uh, this book is The Wisdom of Your Heart, Discovering the God-Given Purpose and Power of Your Emotions. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. If you want to connect with Mark, you can find him at markallenshelsky.com or on Twitter at Shelsky. 
There'll be links to those in the show notes as well. If you want to connect with Steve, even though he's not here, you can find him at IamSteveAustin or IamSteveAustin.net. You can find me at Robert Vohr or at robert vorcom Mark, do you have any closing words for our listeners today? Oh, man, that's a hard on the spot kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, huh, this stuff is hard work if you've not done it. It's been hard work for me, but it is really, really fruitful and has changed the nature of my relationships and has changed the nature of my awareness of God's presence. And so I think it's easy to dismiss conversations about emotion as being sort of touchy-feely, superficial kinds of things. But this really gets down to the heart of who we are as mm. humans. And I think God wants to be in that place. Like I just I think that the view that we have of Christianity and spirituality being sort of all about uh, logic and right theology and doing the right thing because it's the right thing, I think that view has led to a lot of us having really empty lives of faith that are built largely on obligation. And that's not what I see in the New Testament. It's not what I see in the life of Paul. It's not what I see in the life of of many Christians that I know who have deep emotive relationships with God. And so I hope that this can be a, a handhold for somebody to take a step into a deeper, uh, deeper way of living. So good. Well, hey, thank you for taking some time today to talk to us. I highly recommend this book. It, I enjoyed it immensely. So, Mark, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.